Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Clifford Lewis is a marketing academic at Charles Sturt University. His research focuses on place marketing, exploring LGBTQIA inclusion both within one's community or a recreational context. Within this field, he has drawn on socio-psychological theories to explore how places and experiences can be made more inclusive for LGBTQIA people. Through his work, he has called for a more nuanced and sensitive approach to research which considers the diversity encapsulated under the LGBTQIA acronym. He is passionate about using research to make the world more inclusive. Thank you to Cliff for joining us and speaking about the lack of visibility of mental health services in rural and regional communities for the LGBTQIA people and the massive changes in education and awareness that could bring about big changes in the sector. Thank you, Cliff. Good afternoon, Clifford. Welcome to the podcast. Just to get the session started per se, can you tell us about the work and the, and the research you're doing at Charles Sturt University? Great. So I'm a, a senior lecturer in the School of Business, but my work looks at LGBT inclusion. How does that all fit together? You know, when we think about marketing, which is what I teach in, marketing can really change society and change the environment. And inclusion quite often needs that environment to be changed. My research in particular looks at LGBT inclusion in rural regional communities because that's where there is the biggest challenge. When we often think about the rights LGBT people, myself included, have been able to gain over the years, those rights and those benefits, those, that level of acceptance is mainly in the city where people can be themselves, where there are you know, suburbs like Newtown, like Surrey Hills and places like that, where there is a greater population of LGBT people. But when you think about rural and regional, these are oftentimes more conservative spaces. They are oftentimes spaces which have very masculine, macho sort of occupations like mining and, and steelworks and things like that. So they don't really create space for those that don't really fit those identities. And that's where you know people can fall between the cracks in a way because one in ten of us are LG have a diverse sexual orientation. We're born with a diverse sexual orientation, so one in ten of those being born in rural and regional communities have a diverse sexual orientation. So, what happens to those one in ten then? And can you tell us about, I guess, your findings so far? Yeah. So, my work touches on different aspects of LGBT inclusion in rural and regional communities. Part of it's around belonging and the importance of belonging because we all have a need to belong and we all love to belong. And for those listening, I'd like to get you to take a moment to just close your eyes and think about a place where you belong and how does it feel to belong in that place. But 
for rural and regional people, LGBT people, there isn't that sense of belonging because they cannot really be themselves. They cannot really be the authentic selves in those spaces. Now, the problem is, is more than often, I'm finding that it's not necessarily having something bad happen to you personally that makes you be skeptical, that makes you concerned or vigilant. It's because there are so many negative stories that you don't really put yourself out there to find a community. If you don't put yourself out there to find a community, you're not going to have that sense of belonging. So we have to sort of tackle this prejudice by digging a bit beneath and, and getting rid of some of these concerns as much as we can socially and also within uh, you know, helping LGBT people to accept their, their, their communities and to be themselves within their communities more, more so. The other stuff that I look at is about Pride events and I love a good event like the Mardi Gras mm. and it's always amazing when you have these events at, in rural and regional communities because you get you know, like Wagga Mardi Gras. Wagga, Wagga did their first Mardi Gras in 2019. I don't, I don't know how many people expected it to be as good as it was. You know, so the population of Wagga, I think, is about 60,000 from memory. There were about 10,000 people who turned up to this event. Amazing. And suddenly it was like, oh, geez, so everyone supports us. And I was interviewing a few LGBT people on that day in Wagga to, to ask them whether they'd be going to the event. And there was a sense of apprehension about, oh, I don't know, what if we go? What if no one turns up? You know, I don't want to be outed in my home, home community. There was a lot of those concerns. And then when you had 10,000 people turned up, suddenly the whole conversation shifted. You know, I think one thing that became quite apparent is the, the, the silent majority was actually people who support and are allies of the LGBT community. Yeah. You know, so I think it, it became quite uh, clear and that helped change the environment. It helped change how people related with each other because after that, people were saying to me, oh, I don't mind having breakfast outside with my boyfriend anymore. You know, I don't mind holding his hand in public or her hand in public. And that just changed the narrative and people were allowed to then be themselves. So it's amazing to see how small things like that, which often start with, you know, the person who did it, uh, started it, Holly uh, is a trans woman. And just this idea that she had, she took it and ran with it, and it's made such a big difference in that community. Is this a documentary on ABC Australian Story? Yeah, I think she was in that too. Yeah. Some bells for me. I remember watching yeah. this on ABC probably last year, I think, maybe, and it was a gift. An incredible story. I don't know if it's available for viewers to, to watch at the moment. Perhaps if you have a look on ABC Ivy, you might be able to find it. But I vividly remember this documentary actually speaking with you. And on that, I think, you know, everyone deserves to feel safe to be seen um, no matter what your orientation or, or your gender or your mm -hmm. preference is. And I think it's an initiative that we need to see in rural and remote communities around Australia to um, ensure that everyone feels safe to be seen. We do. And it's it's such a basic thing, isn't it, to be saying it in 2022, just to be safe to be yourself, yeah. really. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to know, I guess, if you could share your take on what is happening, if we can dive into what is actually happening in rural and remote communities in Australia for our LGBT community. Let's go back to the theme of, I guess, feeling safe to be seen. Do you feel like there is that opportunity or are we still working towards that? You know, I'm very hopeful for the future because I think a lot of young people today don't really care about things like that. Mm -hmm. And I know when I say don't really care, it sounds negative, but I think that's where gender and sexuality should be. It shouldn't be something we care about, yeah. which should be something we live and experience and enjoy but not something that we have to think about, about coming out and, 
having those difficult conversations. What I've found through my research is quite often rural and regional communities can actually be quite good for LGBT people because it gives you safety or with the smaller population, you know, you know everyone, you are somebody within that community. You know, if you were somebody living in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, you're just one of thousands and thousands and millions, right? But in these small communities, that's who you are. You are that person. You know, people know you, they know what you're about, they know what, who you are. The risk, though, also comes from that because everyone knows everyone's business is what I often hear in my work. And because of that, I don't want to stick out. I don't want to be different to everyone because I just want to. And that's where the biggest challenge comes in. It is, you know, there are definitely communities that are amazing for LGBT people like Braidwood's got a huge population, far northern New South Wales has got a population around there. So there are a lot of rural and regional communities that are really great. But We're still working with the challenge of perceptions in terms of lack of awareness, Mm -hmm. lack of visibility about what it looks like. Mm -hmm. The biggest challenge, what I'm beginning to realize and see now is we've got to keep in mind rural and regional communities often have high levels of migrants and refugees settling there. You know, if one in 10 of people are born LGBT, quite likely there are some of them too. So how then do we help them adjust to those communities? Because they've got to adjust to the friction of a different language a different culture and acknowledge their sexuality within all of that or their gender identity within all of that. So it can be quite complex in that way. And I think that's that's where the biggest bigger challenges are emerging. So if we can support them, we can then hopefully support all the others because they're so far out in terms of the peripheries. Yeah. Awesome. Let's talk about the mental health sector. Can you outline where you are currently seeing the gaps in mental health services for LGBT community and individuals in rural and remote areas? Well, the gap can more than often be in the visibility of these services. Mm. And that comes from this idea that very often, like I remember doing an interview with someone in a regional town and he was in public life and he said to me, oh, that's not something we have to worry about here. There's no, there are no gays in this town. Wow. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> but with that mindset, what happens is there aren't that then services put in place to support. You know, there isn't that visibility of the services to be able to support. Uh, the other challenge comes in is accessing spaces like one of the, you know, if you're not out, you don't want to go to a place that advertises themselves as an LGBTQ support place, a support service. You know, you'd want to be able to do it online and feel comfortable doing it online. Relatedly as well is also information on health needs and more broadly, LGBTQ plus people have different health needs than heterosexual cisgendered people. Very often because there is that lack of visibility, there is no perception of what those different needs are and there might be the lack of education. So I've heard some stories of people who, you know, don't know what tests to get when they're going to get their, you know, sexual health screening and, and uh, test done in that way because they've just never heard about it and they haven't have to hear about it at all. So I think it's really all interconnected in, in, in that way. I know I'm sort of diverging towards the physical health, but, you know, it's just that awareness, that lack of knowledge and that lack of visibility to be able to see individuals in that position. And I think, you know, when you talk about delivering health services in rural and regional communities, that visibility can often be lacking in terms of seeing someone like me giving delivering that service. Yeah. And of course, that's a, a challenge because some of these communities are that small. But technology gives us such great capabilities that we can start leveraging. Do you feel, I mean, obviously we're still battling with 
stigma associated to LGBT, I guess, community, which is so backwards and shouldn't be the the way that it is. Um, I feel like it's improving somewhat, but we do have a way to go. And then couple that with living in a rural and remote area where perhaps, as you were saying, there's a small amount of services. Some might be visible, some may not be visible. Um, When it comes to someone within the LGBT community wanting to go and get help for their mental health, whatever it might be, do you feel like the, the potential of being seen or having that stigma attached to it is um, preventing individuals for seeking the help that they need? Well, well, definitely, because I think, you know, I think what I'm just trying to recollect the stats, I think it was one in three LGBT people find it difficult to get the mental health needs, they, mental health support they want. Right. So that's quite quite a significant population. And from memory, it's a you know it's, it's sort of more significant within the trans and gender diverse communities who need that support along with their journey in transitioning. So it gets quite confusing. In rural communities, trans people are eleven times more likely to consider suicide than other general populations, right? Mm-hmm. Eleven times more likely. That's a shocking. Yeah. Sad, isn't it? Eleven times. Yeah. So there are some significant challenges and also the challenge related to that is we actually do not know what the challenges are because the ABS doesn't capture data on gender and sexuality, sexual orientation, so we don't really know what the distributions really are and where the mental health challenges come in. But going back to your your question, Talita, I think I might have to ask you to remind me what your question was. We're talking about the the stigma associated with yeah. and whether that prevents seeking support. Yes, indeed, because I think w- one of the things with rural and small towns is this fear about if I go and get help from someone, I might be outing myself. I don't trust them enough not to tell other yes. people. Yeah, yeah. I don't trust other people enough not to keep it quiet. To keep it quiet if they see me going into the service, there is a lot of distrust, and we also come. We're coming at the healthcare model from a very heterosexist mindset, which is you've got a you know you've got an opposite sex partner, you've got you know you're interested in, you're happy with your gender and things like that, right? Your your gender your cisgendered got an opposite sex partner. When we approach things like that, we often don't even ask questions about people who are different or who have a diverse orientation in any way. So to give you an example, I know when I've gone you know to get medical to to a medical doctor in the past. They wouldn't ask. They won't ask me if I'm gay or straight. Right. And that single question makes such a huge difference to the treatment I get. Right. Like because if I'm getting an STI check, huge difference between those two worlds. Yeah. The kinds of diseases and the kinds of infections that needed to be need to be tested for. So it's a it's a huge different gap. And what happens very often I hear that there is this need to educate the provider, which then de- sort of deviates quite significantly from, you know, or rather takes away that level of trust in the provider if I've got to tell you what, what help I need. Yeah. So there is, of course, you, you know, we've also got to keep in mind we are dealing with a, a not a deficit mindset, but a mindset that's a bit unconfident, a bit insecure, a bit hypervigilant and concerned for their safety. Yeah. So it's really hard to unpack all of that and then provide a service within that where they're comfortable. Mm. But that's what we need to sort of start aiming towards to, to make it more accessible. Absolutely. Do you feel we are seeing improvements when it comes to inclusivity and greater acceptance for the LGBT community? Can you maybe share some experiences of your own if you're comfortable in doing so? 
This is a very difficult question to answer. The biggest, one of the biggest problems with the word LGBT communities is that it is multiple identities that came together. The acronym started forming because, you know, it was easier for the lesbians and the gays to get together and fight against, Mm -hmm. you know, fight for inclusion and thus each letter joined on. But when we look at that acronym, we also take away the differences between the groups. Right. Lesbian, gay, bisexual is a diverse sexual orientation, transgender, you know, is more gender identity. And the reason why I'm talking about this is we need to then think about each of these groups and who is accepted and who's not. Mm-hmm. You know, where we are in society at the moment, trans people have significant challenges compared to lesbian, gay, and bi people. It's incredibly hard to access services that help them. It's incredibly expensive to access services that help them transition. Mm-hmm. What does that do? Ultimately affects mental health. Right, so there is that that impact in that way. But there's also the, the the challenge of within the LGBT communities. If you are from a different country, or where do you live in in Australia? If you're in Sydney, you're more likely to be accepted because there's a bigger community. If you are in rural communities, you're less likely to. If you are a different ethnicity, that adds another level of challenge because quite often in my work, I've heard, well, you can't be gay and Leb- Lebanese. You know, you can't be gay and Indian. But you can, right? Like 1.2 billion population of India, surely there are some gay people. Well, there's at least one talking to you here today. <laughs> but, but we've got the, you know, when you have these different cultures, there are those perceptions that impact the individual accepting their sexuality or gender identity within their culture. And that makes it all the more harder. So I'm not answering your question, but the, what I'm saying is that there are pockets where there are some who are more accepted, typically white gay males, yeah. and then there are others who are not, you know, typically people of color, people with disabilities, who are also LGBTQI+, you know, trans people, trans people, who sort of fall on the boundaries. And the challenge also we have to, you know, I will point out, is that inclusion works both in terms of inclusion within the mainstream, but also inclusion within the LGBT communities. Yes. So there can be also discrimination within the communities, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want to water that down, but that does add another level of of complexity to your question. It sounds as though, I mean, listening to you speak, that we do have quite a way to go in terms of seeing actual and real inclusivity across the board. On that, what type of radical change do you think needs to take place for that to happen? And that's a massive question. I don't expect you to be like, I know the answer to that. But from your perspective, I mean, does it need to change in terms of education and awareness? It needs to change in terms of conversations that take place at the home or at schools. Like, where do you think this needs to start? Oh, uh, yeah, that is a huge question. It is. Uh, Just a simple yeah. conversation <laughs> for a Thursday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. Well, I think there is there is a role for education, and I am so amazed by kids because, like, I'm thinking about my nieces and nephews. Like, you know, it's a non-factor to them. But it's a non-factor because they've seen us, they've seen how we are, they've, they've gotten to know us, and that's why it is a non-factor. So there is that role for, for awareness and for trying to be more inclusive, like in a language, do you talk about mum and dad or parents? You know, do you talk about boyfriend, girlfriend or partner? It's all the small things when we talk, go into a room and say, hey guys, you know, what are we actually saying when we use guys, which is typically associated with, with, with men? Right, so we've got to be quite quite mindful of that and try and model that behavior for for our kids who are already so amazing to be who like just they're very open to it, but it gives them the the skills and the confidence to start having that change. I don't know whether more education, of course education awareness always help, 
But, you know, we've now got to start taking that education and awareness and implementing it in our lives and practicing it so we can start bringing that change about. I think too we can learn a lot from children, can't we? Because they have a beautiful perception and lens of the world and of people, which is of no judgment. Yeah. They see people for who they are. And if only we didn't lose that as we got older and I guess tarnished by the world and society that we live in. If we had if we held on to that innocence and that acceptance that we have as young children up until probably the ages of, I don't know, maybe seven or eight when you still yeah. developmentally. It's the curiosity mindset, isn't it? That that wonderment. Because, you know, like my, my nephew when he, well, recently he clued in that, you know, his uncle and I were gay, right? And he was like, yes, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing else to it. And he was just proud that he worked it out himself. Oh, bless. That's... <laughs> That's so fantastic. Yeah. And in terms of the research that you're going to be doing next year, is it still going to be focusing on the rural and remote component or do you look at other areas and other demographics? What I'm really hoping to do next year is look at how we can foster belongingness for uh, LGBT people in rural communities and remote communities. Mm. It's it's a huge thing because, you know, if people don't feel like they belong, obviously they're going to leave. Yeah. Right. If they if they're going to leave, be losing that that brain drain. You know, as I said, one in ten people are born with a diverse sexual orientation. Quite likely, one in ten people born in rural, remote communities have a diverse sexual orientation. That's what's leaving. Yeah. Right. There's also the emotional and the physical cost in terms of uh, suicidality. You know, the impact on families. In fact, uh, there was a report recently that in 2019 it cost Victoria something like 24 billion what? to support LGBT people, but that's because of mental health needs, suicidality, the impact on grieving, loss of employment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So that's a huge amount. When you extrapolate that, I was doing a bit of uh, of haunting. Uh, You know, if you extrapolate that, it's a huge amount nationally, you know, so it works out to about 80 billion, if not around a bit more there. So that's a huge cost for us. So if we can start constructing the sense of belonging where people feel like they belong and they can stay in that place, it allows them to really bring their their authentic selves to whatever they do. Yeah. And also reduces that displacement, it reduces that anxiety because there is that imagine constantly having to hide yourself. Yeah. And you can't, you know, so you can't use I can't say a boyfriend. You yeah. know, you've got to say your partner or you've yeah. got to like, you know, weasel around pronouns. So it's a huge challenge and, you know, it'd be great and we can come to a place where people feel like they can just belong and be themselves and fit in. It's interesting. I'm just thinking of my lovely sister. I'm very close with my sister and and she's gay and she's just been on a tour around the United States and Europe and she came back a couple of weeks ago and she was telling me how unsafe she felt in certain areas of America, Mm. particularly the areas that are Oh, very, I guess, where Christianity is a, is a big focus and she felt like she had to hide herself and hide the fact that she was gay and hide the fact that she has a wife. Yeah. And I I was shocked to hear that. Not so much shocked that parts of America were still in that mind frame, but shocked that she felt that she couldn't be herself over there. She had to pretend to be straight. Yeah. And that for me is ludicrous in this day and age. But then again, unfortunately, there's a lot of, I guess, they're not so progressive in terms of acceptance in certain states in America, just like it's the same here in Australia. And also on that, 
we live in a Northern Rivers area of mm-hmm. New South Wales. Oh, yes, and indeed. It's a beautiful part of the world. But I remember very vividly, I'm sharing some stories with you to, to relate to what you're saying, but my sister and her ex-wife at the time were walking down this main street of a town that is a well-known rural town in the area. And she said that her ex-wife and her were holding hands, just walking down the main street, you know, minding their own business. And a gentleman in a car was driving past and yelled out profanities out the window. And this is probably three years ago. And she came home and told me about it. And I I just couldn't believe it. I don't know why I thought that that was so, that, you know, it shouldn't be happening. Obviously, of course, it is still happening. But it, it just really made me think twice about the fact that that type of behaviour is still around in our communities and it's absolutely unacceptable. And you've touched on exactly why we need mental health services to support LGBT people in rural and remote communities. You know, if you've got that happening, if you do not know anyone else who looks like you or acts like you or behaves like you or you can talk to and have that relationship with, you do need those services there to be able to cater to that mindset because... When you're, you know, as as anyone listening, I suppose, would know, when you're really anxious, when you're really stressed, when you're really feeling the stress of it all, you're not likely to go out and search for a service. Yeah. You're likely to just stay at home and isolate. isolate. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're within the rural community where you can't really even tell anyone, I'm gay or I'm bi or I'm a lesbian, I'm trans, and this is why I'm feeling it. So you really can't even share why you're suffering, which mm-hmm. is a really hard thing. So that's exactly why we need to have those services that, don't really wait for people to come to them. But hopefully in a world where the services are just that available, that people can feel that they can approach it a lot more easily. And lastly, for our listeners, I'm sure that there might be some listeners whose daughters or sons or cousins or uncles or aunties or whomever they may be in their circle are in the journey or in the process of perhaps coming out or finding who they are truly within themselves. What piece of advice would you give them? You've got to do it in your time when you're ready, I think is the best piece of advice I could give. I think it's it's a very personal journey. It's a beautiful journey. It's very liberating when you're on the other end, mm. but you need to do it at your time and in your journey and find people who you feel safe and comfortable with, whoever the, that group might be. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's you know a person you work with, maybe it's someone you know as an acquaintance, but try and reach out and have those safety nets in place just so you have that support. And I suppose... One thing that I've, has always struck me is there is a community there of queer people, of LGBTQIA plus people who are willing to have you. So don't ever feel that you're disconnected. I think just find your tribe within it. Yeah. You're not alone. You're not alone. Fantastic. You've been a pleasure to speak with Clifford. Thank you so much for your time. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.